here are five ideas that I think might be relevant to the way that you build this out in the future. Let me know if you want to grab a coffee. And he said, yes. And now I get paid (laughs) to send those exact same emails um, (laughs) and and tell people I have, I have ideas. And for some reason they, they listen to me sometimes. talking to Dan Egan. He's the director of behavior science and investing in Betterment. Uh, We talk all about what he does at Betterment in this episode. It's really fascinating. And he's really an authority on all things behavioral finance. So if you've heard of BFI, then then you've probably associated his name with it. And actually, when I was uh, looking for advice earlier in my career, he's one of the people that I went to to learn about, you know, what, how does how does uh, behavioral science work in industry, and you know what are the differences between industry and academia, and so on? Um, he's created some really cool resources. Uh, we can actually put them in the show notes. Yeah, great resources, and we also had a great conversation. We covered quite a bit of ground from some recent things like Robinhood and meme stocks. Uh, <laughs> I'm learning new words as well through this episode, and obviously his work at Betterment, work-life balance. We dig into a little bit of what is ways of thinking about harm reduction, behavioral design for good, and maybe most importantly, guacamole. So <laughs> it's a fun one, and we hope you're going to enjoy it as much as we did. Welcome to the Behavioral Design Podcast. I'm very excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. I guess we're going to jump right in because I find it fascinating you being, I think, one of the few people I know that's head of behavioral science and investing, and especially also for a very exciting organization as well. So could you maybe start by sharing a little bit how you got started in the field and where what got you to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, Even going back to sort of undergrad, I, I, I was intrigued by how people make sort of very high-end cognitive or economic decisions. So things involving probabilities, your sort of, you know, classic, like, how do people think about bets and gambles and how do they value money? And ended up going to, this was back in 2005, the London School of Economics for a master's degree, which was one of the only programs at that point in time that was really post uh, sort of post undergrad focused on this sort of stuff and had a great time in the program. Um, the London School of Economics was excellent. Living in London for a year was excellent. And I was just very lucky in that as my time there was closing, Barclays, which is one of the largest banks in the United Kingdom, it's a sort of universal bank. So they do everything from checking and savings accounts, mortgages for buying properties, corporate finance, all the way up to ultra high net worth um, stuff and investment banking. They wanted to hire a set of behavioral finance people for their wealth management division. Uh, so Greg Davies was the one who kind of made that happen. He was the the director who convinced them that it was a good idea. He hired me and another person to do applied behavioral finance for very wealthy people. Let's say this was asset management. I think our services started for people who had $2 million or more in investable assets. And what was good about that is that you had a sort of, you were unrestricted. They could do a lot of things. They could, you know, trade derivatives and options, real estate. Um, you could, there was a very wide array of things. And so the question was more, how do you decide what you should and shouldn't focus on with them? How do you take into account their sort of consumer psychology, both as an individual or as a group, if you had a family or sometimes a sort of like a pension fund or endowment funds investment committee? How do you reconcile all of those people's um, psyches? And it was great. It was, I learned 
an amazing amount. We we did a really good job of kind of working within a advisory framework. We worked with advisors who worked with clients, and this is really critical. We did not do too much directly with clients. We set up a kind of like a questionnaire and worked with investment professionals about how to dovetail services and products with different people's psyches. And over like I was involved with a lot of the tech rollout of that. So like how do we how do we deliver the questionnaire to people? How do we generate the reports? How do we tie it back to the investment solutions in a way that's quick and easy and convenient for the advisors and the clients? Uh, and so there was a step there where I got very into the coding and technology side of things to just work with colleagues to get things done. Fast forward ahead sort of seven years. And, you know, we got to the point where effectively the client came to an online portal. Um, they filled in a questionnaire and then our backend systems processed that questionnaire and came up with a, a set of recommendations and two reports, one report that went to the client, one report that went to the advisor. And then the advisor had this conversation with the client. And so you're, you, if you look at it, you're like, oh, you know, like there's a middle part there that maybe we could just hop over. Maybe we don't necessarily need the advisor saying, you know, like your risk profile four <laughs> instead of a risk profile five. Maybe we could do that directly through the web interface. So that was like one thing that started hitting me. The second was that we were always dealing with what I consider a two-body problem. So as a behavioral finance researcher, I was like, hey, is this thing that we are doing, like what kind of effect is it having? What are the outcomes like? What do people feel or say about it? And it was never just about the experience that we were delivering. It was about us and the advisor. So you were always like your your effect was mediated through this advisor and they had their own set of incentives and beliefs and ways that they handle things. So it's just a very noisy environment to know whether or not what you were doing was it working? Was it effective? And finally, the last thing that was a bit weird is like, I don't have $2 million. I couldn't actually partake of the services and everything that we were helping people with. And that just puts you in a weird position and that you're like, I, I don't know, is this like, is this good? Is this meaningful? I don't, I don't eat a lot of caviar. Uh -huh. Is this, you know, the right kind or something? So in... To do, do, I think sort of 2012, I moved to New York City with the company and started using Betterment mm -hmm. as a customer and said, you know, like there's a lot of potential here. There's some, there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of stuff that needs a lot of work, but I have some ideas about how it could help out. And I just cold emailed the CEO then, John Stein, uh, saying, Hey, I love like what you've got going on here. Here are five ideas that I think might be relevant to the way that you build this out in the future. Let me know if you want to grab a coffee. And he said, yes. Awesome. And now I get paid to send those exact same emails um, <laughs> and, and tell people I have I have ideas. And for some reason, they, they listen to me sometimes. But it's been great. I've been with Betterment for like eight years now. I was employee number 21, I believe. Uh, and it's now a company that has over 250 people in it. And it's been it's a, been a very good company also in that they're very, I don't know how to put it, like a receptive to a behavioral point of view, but also very ethical in that they don't want to use it to, you know, do things that would end up hurting the end client. Mm. Uh, it's a very kind of let's do the right thing and figure out how to make money doing it. So it's been a it's been a great journey. That's so cool. I love that you you went from customer to <laughs> to really the the owner. That's a that's a great journey. So since since you fast forwarded to to now, essentially, I want to ask about how you're doing, how you're sort of surviving uh, during the pandemic, and especially with a family, you're mostly working from home and caring for your kids. How do you uh, how do you sort of juggle all of those things together and prior prioritize your family life uh, with your alongside your work life? How does that work? So it has been a, a big set of iterations, right? You know, we're coming up on in two months, it'll be a year since the first lockdown in the United States. So where we are today is definitely not where we started. Yeah. Where we started was very much me and my wife um, splitting the day equally, where I think 
I would work mornings and she would work kind of like starting at, I don't know, like 2 p.m. till later. And just both of us were responsible for the kid through that period of time. And what was that? That was like last year. So we had a few months um, of doing that before the summer really clicked in. And we are both lucky. Like we're lucky in always. My wife and I both can work remotely very easily. Uh, we have a spare bedroom which is both my office where I am right now and my daughter's bed is right next to it. So come 8 a.m., I kick her out every day and say, it's time for me to go to work and you need to go and have breakfast. We, I think there have been a few things. Like we both, both my wife and I work and the stress has mostly come from that you can stay on top of communications and kind of like the, the daily flow of stuff. But the reduced hours cut into what I would consider the sort of focus or deep work that you get done that makes you feel like you're making progress in a sort of meaningful way than rather than just sort of like a shallow way. And a lot of what we iterated on was trying to figure out how to give each other that time where, you know, even if the kids, you know, somebody else is on point with the kid, they're in the house and they're making noise and they're distracting. So trying to almost proactively lean into like, I'm going to take the kid out of the house so that you can have your focus time and, and deal with it has been a, a big one. So we, we did a number of different things like until we finally got very lucky and one of her classmates from the previous year, a, a mom of her classmate decided to just stay home and be a stay-at-home mother. They also had a younger kid. And so we now have a pod. Uh, that she goes over to every day where they're similarly aged kids. Um, she's there from sort of 10 in the morning till four at night. And then, you know, my wife does morning still. I do afternoons and I pick her up and try and get her to stay outside with me as long as possible. It's right now, it's probably like negative five degrees in New York City. So it's a little bit of a challenge. Um, but it's an, it's involved. It's definitely both of us have, it's involved a lot of flexibility in trying and iterating new things mm. to get to a point where both of us feel like we're okay. Um, and also like being, being very, how do I put it? Like balanced about risk. So, you know, like there's risk in sending your kid off to somebody else's house and, and having the exposures there and everything. It's, it's not a case of zeroing out the risk, but of saying like, okay, you know, like, we can get tested, rapid test is, we can do these things. We think we can kind of like manage the risk. We're not going to eliminate it, but we've, we've done right. pretty well. Because you can never eliminate mm. it, right? <laughs> and it brings up other risks, mm. like the risk that your child will just scream at you all day because they haven't played with somebody who understands how to play house. And I am not good at playing house. <laughs> what? That surprises me. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious in terms of, based on your background, do you feel like you're more aware of risk or or kind of given what you do at work in some ways is helping customers in dealing with risk in maybe another realm, but still dealing with risk. Do you feel like you're a little bit more in that kind of set of thinking around, like we always have to manage risks? Yes, definitely. I, we, we, you know, one of the things that my wife and I, and well, both of us do, but I think I'm probably a little bit more pedantic about is that I, I, I aggressively attack absolute statements about risks and everything, you know, like, um, you know, like anything where it's like masks are completely effective or masks are completely ineffective. Like, mm. come on, no, we're not doing this thing. You know, like we can talk about like relative risks and what the trade-offs are, but there is no like zero risk or like certainty risk really here. And across the board, there's been that that question. I think this is a question everybody in society has had a hard time dealing with, just kind of like values and also agency. So a classic thing that happens is, you know, there are various kinds of masks. There's like the full-on surgical look in N95 masks, there's some like heavy cloth masks. And then there are, um, you know, like, I don't know, like the, the kind of buff neck gator things that you wear when you go skiing, um, which <laughs> I are started out not, with one of not, those <laughs> before I knew yeah, better. Exactly. Uh -huh. And so there's this, this constant churn of like, 
my wife was very down on the neck gaiters for a while. It turns out that she had been reading things that were based upon a bogus study that had actually been doing something completely different. And, you know, like the amount of like, you know, like, oh, research says that goes back and forth between us is a little bit crazy. Um, you know, <laughs> but I think it does come down to like, you have to, someone will trust the other person that like, you know, you align on, hey, there are risks out here. What can you do in the moment and in the circumstance to actively mitigate them? You know, like if you're going out for a run, you know, like, sure, wear a neck gaiter. You're not like in an enclosed space with anybody else. The risks are very low. If you're going, I don't know, like to somewhere where you're going to have to be in an enclosed room with a bunch of strangers, wear the better mask. Mm. So I think that's been part of the, the tough thing has also been kind of seeing somebody else in some circumstance. This is, this is one of my biggest things about marriage is like visible and invisible work and, mm. and not understanding how, what the other person has been doing, you know, like, so like I come home from something and she sees me just wearing a neck gaiter and she's like, what are you doing? I th- we need to wear better masks. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I was just like walking the dog. I wasn't near anybody. <laughs> and you have to just sort of like give agency and trust to other people instead of second guessing a lot of it, even if you feel put at risk by their actions. I think that's been very hard for everybody. Yeah, assuming the best of, of others. But this really reminds me of a, an article that you wrote actually in Behavioral Scientist where you talk about uh, harm reduction versus prohibition and and you call out some strategies for uh, for actually doing harm reduction successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that nobody likes to, it almost, you know, I have a five-year-old. So like, I know about like the best way to get her to do things is to tell her to not do them. You know, like, <laughs> don't jump on that. And <laughs> yeah, she jumps right. on that. And as much as we'd like to say that, you know, like we're adults and it's completely different for us, actually adults are to some degree just large children. And telling people, you know, do this or don't do this, it does kick up a sort of defiance mechanism inside of us. And it's often better to say like, do that, you know, you want it, you want a drink, that's fine. Just do it safely, please. And here's how to do it safely. Yeah. And in terms of the kind of things that are happening right now, I feel a little bit missed to not talk about the craziness being going on, call it the, in the world of finance and investing, especially last week and even this week as well. Mm-hmm. And given also what you mentioned before in terms of the idea of I think we also talked about it in different settings about doing behavioral design for good. I'm curious what your kind of behavioral take is on GameStop, Robinhood, meme stonks, and <laughs> and everything in between. Like, what is your kind of behavioral side of that? So there's a lot of it that is the same as it's ever been, right? You the the, the idea of like manias and bubbles and short seller squeezes. These are not remotely new things. Uh, I think for a lot of us the the, the first sort of reference point is 1999 to 2001, the tech bubble, where there were message boards and where people were, you know, like, oh, pets.com is going to be the next huge thing to the moon. All, you know, the pace was slower. We didn't have those computers in our pocket and apps available. So one of the things that I think circumstantially changed, you know, like, well, you have to be very aware of the context that psychology happens in and how it does change over time. Uh, obviously, number one, there's a pandemic. People are bored. Um, they're sitting in front of their screens. They can't go out and do cool, meaningful things. So everything's through the screen. Uh, the message boards are better at gamifying things with flags and flair and blah, blah, blah. Um, you get more instant feedback if you have the Apple on. You get notified that people are interacting with you and so on. So that context really brought a lot of, uh, I would say... I don't know, inexperienced um, people into a game that is played by professionals, very rough and tumble. Mm. And part of what happened is the brokerages have gotten better and better at letting people grab the power tools of investing earlier with less education and less safeguards. And that's fun until you cut yourself because cutting yourself with a chainsaw is a heck of a lot different than cutting it with, (laughs) you know, like a little kitchen knife. So 
the the like ease of access, you know, you can call it democratization, but it's also democratization of harm. Oh. Um, mm. Is making it easy for people who kind of don't know a lot of like what what the mechanics of things are and where they could go wrong, get hurt here. I think there is a a, a very dark aspect to it, which is that a lot of people feel betrayed by banks getting bailed out mm. in the 2008 financial crisis and that normal people weren't. Yeah. And that the game is just rigged towards the wealthy getting wealthier. And there was an element of like, I'm happy to burn money in order to hurt hedge funds and see if I can harm them. Um, you know, like maybe one hedge fund went belly up, but Wall Street did not get hurt by you coming in and trading a lot. That's, that's exactly how they make money. They were perfectly happy with that. And I, I think when I, I, I look at it, I think like, okay, is this like a permanent change? Are we now going to see lots of DIY investors coordinating through message boards and getting really excited about sticking it to the man, um, et cetera? I think we're going to, I hope we'll, we'll see it going away for a couple of reasons. Number one, which is that, you know, hedge funds can read message boards too. And they're wise to how quickly these things can escalate now. And so they're going to take that on as part of their misgritigation strategies. But also, I really hope as vaccines roll out, people will spend more time doing real things, mm. three-dimensional <laughs> world things, rather than playing with little stock figures on their phone. And they'll spend more time doing things that actually make them happier and, and wealthier, rather than kind of like gambling at home on a, on a smartphone. Yeah, and how do you see that as like a challenge from Batman's perspective in terms of, in some ways, the tricky thing is that Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the work you do seems to be helping people think about the future. So being aware that, okay, well, we're all somewhat biased for the present. And especially Robinhood or similar apps seems to a little bit take advantage of that in some ways. So like really trying to make it really rewarding and fun in the moment of like trading options and making it easy to trade options and, and give you a sense of kind of <laughs> reinforcement for that behavior early on. And so from a better perspective, how in general do you think about just making sure that people can think about a little more of the future self and maybe not have to worry about every day how their balance is doing or those kind of things, but how they can think about their financial decisions with a little bit longer horizon. Taking a little bit of a step back, I don't think this is particularly true of like my employer. I think it's generally true. It often feels easier to do the slightly evil thing than to do the difficult thing, right? Like it's easier to sell sugar to kids than broccoli. And that's why getting kids to eat healthily is like this challenge mm. because the thing that we know is not the best for us is the thing that's easy and fun. And, you know, I, th I think marketing chocolate's relatively easy compared to marketing broccoli. So one element of it is that my job in trying to really help people lead what, I mean, maybe I'm imposing my values here, but like what I think is a good, you know, financial life involves making boring things sexy involves like taking taking people who don't trust a system or who believe that it's rigged and showing them that like no there are normal people there i think you know coming back to the original like me having most of my money in betterment me putting my parents and my family and my friends money in betterment and knowing that i'm on the hook for that goes a long way to knowing that like i have skin in the game here and it is a little bit like, I, I think of it as sort of the, there's a, a, a gradient, a mountain, if you will, that if you want to have people have better outcomes, you're going up the mountain. It's hard to walk up a mountain. It's easy to ski down a mountain. It's hard to walk up a mountain. And that is just an ongoing thing. It's a slog every day to say, you know, like, maybe you should think about how you could save more money or make a little bit more so, so that you can save more money instead of you know doing this very sexy short-term gambling thing that's going to give you a hit of dopamine. Um, and, you know, it like has intermittent reinforcement when you log in and some days it's up and some days it's down and so on. So it's hard. I think you do 
one of the toughest bits about it is that I think um, once people have some experience, and I'm talking about like not not a small amount of experience, but a few years of experience, they end up saying, you know what, like I, this, I'm kind of burnt out of this. Like it seems fun, but it's a lot of work and it's a lot of my time. And maybe I'm better off focusing on the thing that I'm really good at in my job or like, like I want to spend more time with my family, whatever it is that's more meaningful and I can outsource this. Um, and it's getting people to think about investing as being like, I don't know, getting your car tuned up or getting a haircut. You know, like you could do it yourself. You totally could. You probably wouldn't do it as well. And it means that you have to deal with this thing. And like, if you make a mistake, it's on you. You don't get to yell anybody at anybody about it. I think I'm very lucky in that Betterment tends to be a very ethical place where like they know how they make money. They're very thoughtful about how they make money. A lot of the incentive alignments that we see in companies like social media that sells ads. So they want to just sort of capture as much of your attention. It is a, it's a, it's a business decision choice to say, this is how we make money. And we're going to decide these are the incentives that we're going to bring to the table of how we make money. Um, so number one, being aware of like choosing how you make money does defines your incentives, which look for what a company's incentives are and they figure out how you can get them aligned with it. They've been, I've been very happy with that. But again, the, the sad thing is like you watch as, Companies with bad incentive alignments grow quickly, right? It's like snake oil sells out. It's it's just amazing how quickly the stuff that isn't necessarily good for you grows. Um, and so there's this really tough thing that I'm try that I struggle with a lot, which is consumers by their behavior say they want the thing that is bad for them, and you have to trick them somehow into wanting the thing that's actually good for them. And so you you do interesting you like you know like let's put let's let them upload their own personal photos to associate with their goals so they feel like it's more theirs they're invested in it psychologically. Let's make it super easy where like people don't want to make a budget. Can we figure out how to make a budget for them so that they don't have to do the thinking and you know they just they want an answer and we do it. Yeah. So it's it's a real balance. It's a it's a balance of where a person is. How much do they want to delegate to you? How much do they feel like they should be have agency in the decisions of what funds to pick and everything? But um, it is every day a daily slog of like, you know, I just hope I get another five steps up the mountain. It's, it's not easy. All right. I want to totally switch gears and uh, ask you something about, you know, just how our brains work and how we're programmed, essentially. You know, there's a lot of, we have a lot of tendencies that are really there for a reason. They they sometimes get in the way and, you know, cause us to make mistakes, but um, also make life, you know, much more efficient and, and manageable on a day-to-day basis. So if you think about, um, you know, our heuristics and our biases, do you think there are uh, are any of them that, that really um, aren't necessary that are really sort of vestigial features of the brain. Um, and of course, if you get rid of the the bad parts, um, you're also losing the good. So what do mm-hmm. you, what do you think? Are there any vestigial features of like our, our, our mentalities that really are just no good for us? Yeah. I think like I have read evolutionary psychology, but I would never like, you know, want to say that I, 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 I am good enough at it that I can kind of make really strong claims. I think a lot of the stuff that is about like relative outcomes, how much we care about relative outcomes is a zero sum game. It hurts us in a lot of ways. It is a, th- a thief of joy when really you should be happy about something and you see that somebody has something a little bit more, a little bit different in like the, the ingrainedness of the idea that like there are winners and losers and that we can't all be winners doesn't, doesn't, I don't know that really anybody benefits from that. And so I think that we, and I think this is a broad thing happening 
society today where the ability to see extreme winners is greater than ever. You know, like they're called out, you know, like here are these billionaires, here are these celebrities, these people who have fame and respect and stuff and money. And when you're just sort of like a normal person, it just makes you feel bad. Um, and so of course, you know, we could have like a, a perfectly equal society or something, but I think that also brings with it. It's a bad thing. I just, I wish people would focus more on like, what do I need mm-hmm. to make myself happier and more content? What are the things that are actually relevant to me? And then like really focused on, on changing and improving those things rather than constantly being like, what do other people have and how do I compare to that? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. The grass is greenest on my lawn would be the saying that people have in that world, I guess. Yeah. There's some old thing of like, you know, take everybody in a room and they have to write their problems down on pieces of paper and put them into a bowl. And then you push everybody's bowl to the middle of the table and you say, go through and read them and decide whether or not you would ever choose somebody else's problems. And oh. everybody just wants their own problems back. Right. You know, so there are, I love that. there are ways of thinking about it. Right. That's interesting. Uh, I love that. Well, that was really, really interesting. I, uh, I think it's, it's a really good question. We, we might keep that going, I think, because it's, it's interesting to hear what people think about what could be the studio and, and what we can maybe be better off having less of or more of. But we're going to switch gear a little bit and we're going to finish up with what we have as kind of a staple section of the podcast, which is underrated versus overrated. Cool. And so it's this quick fire round of questions where we will say a bunch of things and you'll just tell us if you think it's overrated or underrated. Excellent. Hit me. Okay. Guacamole. Underrated. And underrated because I think people don't realize how different it can be. I had a good friend who is Indian who used to make Indian style guacamole Mm. that was smoky and had like cumin in it and stuff. I think a lot of people get, for lack of a better, like sort of, you know, store-bought preservative guacamole than fresh-made, you know, like good stuff with variety. So I think people are, they're missing out. They're underestimating the potential of the guac. And I agree. I, I have a signature pomegranate guacamole where instead of tomatoes, you put in pomegranate. It has this like amazing like fall transition. Oh, you have to try it before. Like don't knock it. I'm in. Send me the recipe. Yeah, Absolutely. It's perfect. Um, all right. What about R? The programming language. Yeah. Oof. Oh, that's a really hard one. <laughs> oh man I didn't think this was going to be hard <laughs> you could say correctly read it but we advise against it <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh man I'm going to say both and here's the key thing if you are a software engineer it is underrated because you're going to look at it and you're going to say oh it doesn't run as fast as some other language and it doesn't have these like hardcore typings and stuff and you're going you're gonna to dunk on it for that point of view. And you're going to be like, that's not really that good. So it's underrated if you're a software engineer. On the other hand, if you're like a normal sort of like stats person learning to program and various things, it's much easier. It's much easier to learn. It's probably a little bit overrated for you because you're going to get that ease and you'll be like, ah, oh, I can do stuff. I can get stuff done. Believe me, like time is important. Getting stuff done is very, very important. But it is worth looking at languages that are a little bit harder but do actually give you like you you do this thing in R where like you start out and it's like flying at first because you can actually get stuff done. And all of a sudden you're working on like queries on a giant database with millions of rows. And like, it takes a day for you to do anything because of how slow things are. So that's the transition is it's like, it's ours underrated by people who think about speed and, you know, performance all the time. And it's overrated by people who think about ease of access. Nice. Hunger games overrated or underrated. I think I think correctly rated. I think a lot of I think it's it was it was one of the the um 
it was one of the best conveyances of how various people felt in America at a specific point in time. Uh, the, the like, you know, metropolitan elites who were completely divorced and did really weird stuff and wore makeup and were look a little bit crazy versus the, the salt of the earth, normal people who had family values and stuff. And I think that that those kinds of movies that are both entertaining but also force you to think about, you know, things and about your place in society from sometimes an inside or an outside perspective or great. Taylor Swift. Oh, which year? <laughs> Current Taylor Swift. Pandemic Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm going to go with slightly overrated. Whoa. Controversial. I think, well, this is a, this is a like, you know, she's getting tens out of tens. And I just think that she's a nine out of 10 right now. I think it's absolutely <laughs> remarkable. Like to, you know, she had her, what is it? Her Shakespeare year, her like Annis Miravalis or something. And I think that's absolutely, that's like, that's going to get you right up to like nine out of 10, 10 out of 10. Her career has been a 10 out of 10 to be able to like, she has that classic musician thing of being able to change over time who she is and what kind of music she wants to make to adapt. Actually, yeah, let me take that back. Yeah, I, I would say underrated. Never mind. I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that was the perfect evolution. <laughs> yeah. Talking myself out of my own view. <laughs> That's great. So, switching gears a little bit, the word behavioral design. Ooh. I think underrated. I'm, I'm only minorly in marketing, but I think... Words have a power to just, you know, get a concept across to somebody. I work with a lot of designers who say like, oh, this is UX. And there's a, a level of like, what is what is user interaction versus user experience versus behavioral design? And a lot of it comes down to like, how far out you look at the end goal of what you're trying to do. And when I talk to somebody about like the user experience of something, it tends to be a very short term, you know, like, what is the experience of interacting with this thing? How fluid is it? How easy is it? And it's very rarely like how successful are people at using it? How much did they achieve the end goal that they're actually trying to do? How much could you help them to do that better or, or change who they were along the process? So I think having a specific moniker that just is like a shortcut to say like, listen, I'm not just talking about like the, the like how it feels to use a tool, but how effective you are using that tool and taking into account like your, your psyche as a human is underrated. How about TikTok videos? Underrated. It's clutch though. TikTok is like a garden. You must tend to your garden. You must cut the weeds out <laughs> with great viciousness, get rid of them, get it out of there. Uh, and you must feed things like dog videos and cute kid videos. So I think that one it's of the trained algorithm is a train. It's exactly it's, you know, like, you know, train the dog to do what you want. And I think that there's this is one of these really interesting different people have dramatically different experiences. My TikTok feed is filled with woodworking dogs, kids, and probably like dad jokes. But that's also slightly been like a very deliberate thing of like, if I see like a teenager shaking their butt, I get off of it very quickly. I don't want to reward the algorithm. I don't want to seem interested in that. I like there needs to be a an intentionality to how you interact with algorithms. And maybe I'm unusual and kind of like, thinking that you know like it's not a passive experience it's an active training of like no algorithm bad algorithm you know like don't give me that or you get good algorithm give me more of this but i think that it's a very responsive algorithm and so i think that i actually noticed when i got into woodworking it changed quickly so i think it is a fast learner i think it's good you just need to like be deliberate about training it to feed you content that makes you a better person is there a certain time of day where it's underrated to watch tiktok videos it is overrated to do it anytime after 9 p.m. It is bad and dangerous and you will end up staying later than you should. And <laughs> you should put a block on your phone that says no TikTok after 9.30. Go to bed. Fair enough. And I think we, you might have uh, given away the re result for this question. 
Dogs. Underrated. Still underrated. Still, um, one of the things I've, I've, that I think is underestimated is the degree to which dogs create a better human community. You know, um, I had a friend who worked in sort of like intelligence services and they said the people who you worry most about are like the people who have dogs because they're out walking every day. They notice changes very quickly when they happen in the neighborhood. If you park huh. a van somewhere, you got 24 hours before they're like, yo, what's up with that van? What's <laughs> happening? Who is that? What's going on? Here? Dog owners, we might not know each other's names, but we know each other's dogs' names. We gossip. We talk about things. We're a constant sort of sense of community. Obviously, dogs, people who have dogs tend to live longer. They're great for kids. They teach you how to interact with animals in, in more intentional ways. So I think that dogs are, even if you say like, yeah, dogs are fun and I enjoy being around them, you're probably underestimating how good they are for us. All right. Last one. Building things. Dramatically underrated. <laughs> Dramatically a hobby that has you building something is incredibly frustrating because you are learning. Mm. And I think that has two benefits. One is, you know, like there's the, the, the work of like creating something and being able to be on the other side of it and say, Hey, look, I made this. This is interesting. But I think it also keeps you good at learning. And one of the things that a lot of us lose after we leave school and so on is that sort of like intentional learning. Oh, okay. I need to challenge myself. I need to be, you know, like I need to confront a new process or a new set of ideas and having, you know, building something not only like gives you that skill at the tail end, it keeps you good at like being a learner. And being a little bit humble, like I, I love going into things and be like, wow, I am so bad at this. <laughs> Other people, like there's so much skill and so much to learn, like incredible little things like two by fours are not actually two inches by four inches. You know, like what the heck? What, what's, what is this? But then you understand why and like it keeps you humble in a good way about knowing that you don't know that much about the world and there's still so much else to learn. And you only get that by bumping up against reality, by failing to build things and then succeeding at a later point. I love that. So great. This was a blast. This was really, really fun. Absolutely. Good I questions. think we're going to end on that high note. Yeah. Well, good answers. Good answers. Thank you so much, Dan, both for taking the time today, but also for your great work in the field. It's definitely better because of you. My pleasure. Thanks for running the podcast. It's been a blast. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Behavioral Design Podcast from Habit Weekly and the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. Make sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like what we're doing here, don't forget to share it with your friend, a colleague, your mother, uh, anyone you can think of. Our fantastic show music is Murgatroyd by the wonderful Dave Pizarro. And thanks to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another deep dive into all things behavioral design. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh, oh. Blau. Oh, oh.